Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to meet uh, in the way that we are, Lord, uh, remotely or in person, and be able to study your word together. Lord, we just ask now that you open our hearts and our minds, Lord. The Bible says of itself that it is spiritually discerned, that spiritual things, Lord, can't be understood by the natural mind. And so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand these things. And Lord, not just academically, but spiritually, to understand how they really apply to us. So Father, just bless this time. Take my words, use them. And Lord, just work in our hearts, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We are up to Daniel chapter 10 in our study. Let's start reading. Uh, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, was a thing revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. Now, just a couple of things just to get the set the scene here. We're told it's in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, just looking at this chronologically, we know that all of this takes place in about 536 BC. So about 500 or so years before Jesus comes, we've seen the Babylonian kingdom fall. Uh, We've seen the Medo-Persian empire come to the fore, led by this incredible king, Cyrus, who was spoken about a couple hundred years even before he was born in the book of Isaiah. Um, And and, um, Cyrus ends up with this kind of Uh, friendship relationship with Daniel. Daniel's in this kind of role of uh, effectively prime minister over the whole area of Babylon. And uh, we've gone through a lot of those details already. Um, It's about two years on from the events of the previous chapter. Um, And uh, Cyrus and Darius both started their reigns simultaneously. So it would also have been the third year of Darius. Um, But Darius isn't mentioned at this point. Now, it could be a number of reasons for that. Uh, if you look there, you can see that uh, Darius, or Guberu, who we believe he was from secular history, uh, was given the authority, the position of ruling over Babylon uh, under the auspices of Cyrus. Cyrus was in charge of the empire, but he appoints the head of his army, Guberu, who later takes this title, Darius. The name Darius isn't a name, it's a title. Uh, and so he takes this title and rules over the area of Babylon, but seemingly only for a few years, uh, and he goes uh, off the scene quite quickly. So the assumption, of course, is from historians that he dies uh, relatively soon after coming to this position of authority. Now, a couple of things just to note in this verse. I mean, critics are very quick to point out, and they'll say, well, there's no record of anybody called Daniel uh, in the Babylonian records living at that time. So this all must be fiction. It must be made up, or the book of Daniel must have been written later by some pseudo-Daniel. Of course, we don't know who that would be, uh, and that's what they claim. Um, so, yeah, this is the, their argument. And, of course, many of the prophecies are so detailed and so precise that the critics say, well, it must have been written later after the events because there's no way you could have guessed those things and got them right. Well, that's true. You couldn't guess them and get them right. But if God is outside of time and has revealed them to someone like Daniel, then, of course, we're going to have them in Scripture as we do. But, of course, the problem with the critics is that they don't do joined-up thinking. Um, And Daniel, of course, was his Jewish name. Um, And what they don't tell you, the critics, is that there's lots of records about this Belteshazzar. Well, that's his Babylonian name. That's the name you'd expect to find in the documents of the time. You know, and so this is, this is not really surprising. If you want to dig into it more, Professor Robert Dick Wilson did an incredible study. Uh, really, I mean, we talk about experts. He really was an expert. He could read and write loads of ancient Semitic language uh, from that period of time uh, that, that aren't even used today. So very, very intelligent man. Uh, and he did very, very detailed studies. In his book, Studies in the Book of Daniel, he goes through citing a lot of the evidence. Bill Cooper, in his book, Authenticity for the Book of Daniel, also gives plenty of good evidence to show that these really are historical things that are being referred to. Uh, real events took place, real people, and so on. So it's no surprise. Again, Daniel himself highlights whose name was called Belteshazzar. So that was the name the Babylonians and, of course, then subsequently the Persians knew him by. Um, we, of course, know him by Daniel. That's the Jewish name. It's the name that gives glory to God. Balthashazar was the name that Nebuchadnezzar had given him, which, of course, was to give glory to Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Um, so we don't use that name, but, of course, in Babylon, where he lived and worked, that was the name he was known by. Okay, following. Notice this. Daniel says, the thing was true, 
I mean, I don't think there was any assumption up to this point that Daniel was making this up anyway, but he, he highlights this as if to say, you know, this thing really is true, it's assured. The, the word in the Hebrew there you can see uh, is emuth, and it just simply means sure, assured, it's faithful. Daniel's saying, you know, I had this vision. Uh, this was revealed, a thing, he says, was revealed unto Daniel. And he said, this is true. You know, this isn't some fabrication. And uh, it's just interesting that he actually... Puts that. John does similar things in the book of Revelation. John a number of times says, I, John, as if saying, you know, it's me, you know me, this is me who's telling you this stuff, it is true. Uh, a number of times in John's gospel as well, he makes the point, this isn't stuff that's made up. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up anyway. You know, there's too many details that intertwine and interact with other things. And so, John, certainly in the New Testament and others, um, and Daniel here, just underlining that this isn't some fanciful um, thing that he's recording here. This was true, real events. Um, and uh, we can trust Daniel. Everything he's told us, prophetically, historically, we can verify. <clears throat> Notice uh, that he says also, the time appointed was long. In other words, the fulfillment was to be yet future. So he has this vision, but the vision itself is prophetic. It's looking at something that's going to happen. In fact, what we're going to see is that the last three chapters of Daniel span human history. Now, it's a staggering thing that this thing, as Daniel refers to himself, that was revealed to him was actually covering thousands of years of history and the parts that have come to pass have been fulfilled with astonishing detail. And next week, uh, if you ever want to find a piece of scripture to show to a non-Christian and say, look, now trying to tell me the Bible's not true. Daniel 11 is one. You had 135 prophecies in just a few verses. Detailed, specific prophecies of events that have already taken place. And we'll go through that next week, so you can look forward to that. Um, we'll go through all 135, one by one. No, no, but it will be fun just to go through and see the accuracy of Scripture. But Daniel's saying that these things were, were to be yet future. It was a prophetic vision that he's given. And it goes from the time of Daniel through to the time of the Messiah and through to the time when Jesus will return to sit and rule on the throne of David. <clears throat> and then the last thing just to highlight in this opening verse is that Daniel says, uh, and he understood the thing. Now, this is a really great thing for us because if Daniel was confused, chances are that we might be confused too. But Daniel says, I understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. I just want to highlight this because God is not the author of confusion. We're told that. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. You know, God gives us prophecy so that we would understand. Not so that, we wouldn't, not so that we'd be confused, but so that we would know what is going to come to pass. God reveals secrets to his, his servants. The book of Revelation it begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, the word revelation literally means unveiling. It's a book that unveils or reveals really who Jesus is. A lot of people are very confused about who Jesus is. To many, Jesus is just some uh, word that they use in place of a swear word. Others think Jesus was just a good teacher or some wonderful character from the past that said lots of interesting things. Now, the book of Revelation reveals who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, who came to this earth to live, to die, to pay for the sin of mankind because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And notice what the book of Revelation says. In the opening verse, the reason we have the book of Revelation is to show unto his servants. I, I, could, I, mean, I lost count of the number of times I've heard people say, oh, the book of Revelation is very confusing. Oh, I don't understand it. We're kind of missing the point then, because the reason God gave it was so that you would know. It says in the opening verse that God gave this unveiling, this revelation of Jesus, to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. So if anybody says to you that, you know, it's always all really, you know, yeah, you might need to do a little bit of reading. You might need to do a little bit of research, a little bit of background, but it's not beyond the realm of uh, uh, an average person to be able to get into and understand the details of these things. You know, God gave these things that we would know. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, Paul makes the point, and he says, we're not in darkness. You know, the, the things that are coming, the things that are going to happen in this earth, the things that are going on right now, the laws and the bills that are being passed in Parliament, we shouldn't be surprised at those things as Christians. We're not to be in darkness. 
So again, the book of Revelation is a book that is intended to be understood. It's interesting that in the book of Job in the Old Testament, probably the oldest book in the Bible, uh, the first written, although Genesis is the first we have when we open the Bible up, uh, Job was probably the oldest book, the oldest writing. Job makes this incredible statement. He says, why, seeing times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they that know him not see his days? I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question that Job poses. I mean, really, time is in God's hand. So his own should see the signs of the times and thereby discern the world around us. You know, we have a God who is outside of time. He knows the future before it happens and has revealed it in his word. It's one of the tests that God gives us in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. God says there, test me, prove me, see if it's true. See if I can tell the future in advance. And that's the test that God gives us. And we go to the Bible and we find time and time again God can do that. There is no other book on earth, no other religious writing or anything else that gives us prophecy. There's these predictions. People like Nostradamus and so on, they predict stuff. And you know, and you like to see your horoscopes, which you should, of course, avoid and things like that. But they'll have a small degree of accuracy there. But they don't deal with prophecy. They deal with prediction. They deal with a kind of a lucky guess. We, as I said before many times, we kind of predict the weather. And we use some, you know, bases for that. And we kind of, nine times out of ten, get it close. Um, but sometimes we're wrong. But we, we predict based upon the information we have. Prophecy is not prediction. Prophecy is God telling us what is going to happen before we get there. It's the future revealed in advance. It's very, very different than prediction. So again, how sad it is that so many Christians are often ignorant about the future. They get very worried and very confused. You know, of all people on planet Earth, Christians should be the most peaceful and content, even in the midst of all the trials and the difficulties and the situations we face, because we recognize that God is in control. Verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. Why was Daniel mourning? Well, he doesn't specifically tell us, but it was probably to do with his people, Israel, and their future, particularly the nation uh, and the land and the city and Jerusalem and so on. Those are the things we saw very much in the previous chapter. Daniel was really confused about what was going on, and he turns to the book of Jeremiah, reads Jeremiah's prophecies, and goes, all right, start to understand now that God is doing something, and there's a set period of time, there's a 70-year period of time, after which the city of Jerusalem uh, was rebuilt and so on. So, again, we've seen that that was what was revealed to him, and it will be explained in the following chapters, will specifically relate to Israel and their future. So it's most likely that the reason Daniel was mourning was, again, because he's thinking of his people. He was still very passionate about the land that he'd been taken away from as just a 14-year-old boy or somewhere around about that age. And he, although he'd been removed from Israel and Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Israel had never been removed from his heart. And he says, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all until three whole weeks were fulfilled. So effectively, Daniel's saying he fasted. He went without food, he went without drink, and he, he, he just did this because he was trying to understand. He was in this period of mourning and, and confused, just looking for God to explain really what God was doing. Let me just uh, cover comments on fasting. Fasting is not going on hunger strike to get God to listen to you. All right? uh, for some Christians, you'll find they'll fast when it gets really, really bad. That's not the time to be fasting. If, you, if you've kind of got to that point, you've, you've kind of missed it. Because fasting is about a relationship. The reason you go without food in fasting is simply to focus on God. Jesus fasted continually. And the reason he did that wasn't so that he could perform miracles, so that this particular thing would be done. It was just to maintain that relationship. It's kind of cutting off the, the usual things of the world around you and just getting your heart and mind solely on God. Yeah, there are some Christians I know that fast one day a week, some fast one day a month, and others just as and when they, they feel the Lord calling to do it. It's a good thing to do. You know, medically, if you're in a position you're able to do it, I encourage you to fast. You know, just take some, some, some time. Uh, just take a day or whatever and just say, Lord, this is just, you know, when you would normally eat, use that time. Dig into the word. Just spend time with the Lord. Let him nourish you spiritually rather than just uh, physically. <laughs> Again, fasting is about spiritual tenderness. I can't think of a better way of putting it than that. You know, it's keeping us soft 
towards God and the things of God. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction to a problem that occurs. And as we said, Jesus fasted as a matter of course and was ready to face whatever he uh, encountered. And there's all sorts of examples we can give in Scripture. Matthew 17, 21, uh, Jesus comes down from the mountain and there's this uh, individual possessed with a demon that the disciples couldn't deal with. And they say to Jesus, how do you deal with it? And he said, well, this type comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Jesus hadn't been praying and fasting for that, but he's saying because he was in the right place with God, he knew how to deal with it. And God will give us that spiritual wisdom if we are close to him. Verse 4. And in the 4 and 20th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Heidekel. Now, let's just quickly have a look at what this river is. Heidekel is another name for the Tigris, this river that runs through modern-day Iraq. Uh, the um, river is approximately 20 miles east of Babylon, so not far from Baghdad, if you look on a map today. Uh, and again, remember that Daniel by now is officially retired from his ministerial business uh, serving and so he had no need to be in the city, so this is no doubt why he was out uh, by the river. That's just a picture, you can Google it yourself if you want to, uh, the, the Heidekel or the Tigris, and you can see there on the map, you've got two rivers, your Euphrates on the left, and then the Tigris running down on the right-hand side, and they kind of go either side of the... Or, uh, the Euphrates actually goes through Babylon, Tigris goes uh, to the right-hand side of. Uh, you may recognize the name, because in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we're told that there was a river that went out of Eden. This, of course, is an incredible garden that God planted and placed man there. Um, and this river went out of Eden towards the garden. Uh, and this river that goes through Eden then splits four ways. And we're told that we've got the first one was this river called uh, Pison, then the second one, Gihon, and the third one, Hydekel, and the fourth, Euphrates. Now, this was, of course, before the flood. So that what we have that Daniel's referring to is a river that was given the same name as the one that existed before the flood. Because whatever happened before the flood got wiped out in the flood, and the earth became very different afterwards. But it's interesting that they carry some of those names across. And of course, Heidekel here and Euphrates are two of the names that had existed before the flood, and after the flood, as they get to start naming places and things, so they use those names that they've been familiar with. Uh, of course, Noah and his sons. After the flood. Now, verse 5 says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. Uh, now we get to see a little bit of the vision that Daniel's uh, having at this point. Uh, notice he says, A certain man. Now, the, the real key here is clothed. All right? There are a number of occasions in Scripture where you find things that are clothed with. All right? I would put 12. We have a woman that is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. And also Revelation 17, we have another woman who is also clothed with. And it's amazing how many commentators and scholars miss that little detail. The woman has those examples in Revelation 12 and 17. The woman is clothed with those things. The woman is not those things she's clothed with. I'll just leave it there. We will explore and go into that in detail some other time. But they say that clothing makes the man, don't they? Uh, well, in this case, clothing kind of is a great identifier of the individual. Um, so, you know, the question we can ask is, what are you clothed with? Not physical clothing, but we are told to be clothed with Jesus Christ. That he's our protection, wrapping around us just as you would uh, a coat or something. Now, linen in Scripture is always associated with righteousness or with man, uh, and usually kind of a combination of the two. Uh, we find in Revelation 19.8 um, that we have these uh, individuals that are clothed in this fine linen. Um, so it's always, there's kind of a purity, righteousness associated with it, and again, associated with man. Uh, and then the gold, uh, well, gold in Scripture, not unlike today, is associated with kings. We find a number of occasions we can cite that. Of course, we find it with Solomon and many others. But gold is typically a metal that is seen and uh, depicting kings and their crowns and so on. So if you to put those two ideas together with the clothing that we're told here, what we've got is a righteous man who is a king. Now, that kind of somewhat limits our options. If you look around the world and you try and look for a righteous king, um, you can be looking for some time. Uh, someone in authority that's, that's moral, that's just, that's upright. Uh, well, we're going to go on and see a, a, a more detailed description, and it will identify who this individual is, I believe. So, verse 6, Daniel says, His body also was like the beryl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet 
like in color to polished brass, just gleaming, shining. And the voice of his words, interesting expression, we'll come to that in a moment, like the voice of a multitude. So this is what Daniel does his best. Now, he's in a situation, he's getting his vision, he's trying to put into words what he's seeing. So you, you think if you were in this position, you'd be kind of struggling to try to explain what you're, what you're seeing, trying to articulate. Now, we're not told why Daniel gets to see this vision. But it is the last vision that Daniel will see in the book. There will be prophecies that will come, as we'll see. But this is the last vision. And without a doubt, it's the greatest of all the visions that he sees. So who is this certain man? Well, some scholars have suggested it could be some kind of super angel. And there's occasions in the Bible where we find angels appear and so on. We'll talk a little bit about angels in a while. You know, or what some people refer to as a Christophany. It's a fancy word, but it simply means an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Okay, the second person of the Trinity. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Son didn't just appear at Bethlehem. That wasn't when Jesus was born. Uh, Jesus, the person, uh, the second person of the Trinity, was there from before the foundation of the world. And so in the Old Testament, a number of times we see the second person of the Trinity appear. Uh, many, many examples we could cite. Of course, Abraham, the Oaks of Mamre, and uh, the situation with Hagar. Uh, of course, um, we've got Joshua, the, the night before the Battle of Jericho uh, takes place, and many others. So we've got the um, Samson's parents. Uh, we could cite many, many examples of Old Testament appearances of what seemed to be the second person of the Trinity. And I believe that's who Daniel is seeing here, which is why I believe this vision is so incredible, because he's getting to see Jesus. After all that he's done, all his faithfulness is serving God, God now gives him this incredible vision of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, uh, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, again, this is the, the, the description that John gives us of Jesus, and it's very similar to what Daniel has just described. If you remember, Daniel says his voice was loud, it's like, like many, like a multitude. John says in Revelation, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet. Now, this is just like Daniel explains. His feet were like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Very, very similar description. You'd be hard-pushed to try and say this is anything other than the same account as just two different people seeing this vision of Jesus. Notice also uh, he has in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun that shines in his strength. John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It was so overwhelming. John says, I just kind of collapsed. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. And clearly John sees his vision of Jesus. Daniel's vision seems to be exactly the same. Again, notice, uh, just read this verse again, verse 6. Uh, his body also like, was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, his eyes as lamps of fire, his arms, his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. So very similar. So I believe that Daniel here is seeing Jesus Christ. And he says, and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, which I also think is interesting because it reminds me of the situation with Paul on the road to Damascus. If you remember, Paul was hating Christians. He didn't believe in this Christian stuff, thought it was all nonsense. And so he started trying to persecute these people that were bringing in this strange religious cult as far as he was concerned. And until, of course, he meets Jesus himself. That's always the way. People are very quick to uh, knock Christianity and ridicule it and so on until they get to meet Jesus. And that changes everything. And yes, it's possible. And the reason I know it's possible because as a Christian, I've met Jesus. And I know that every believer has met Jesus and knows they've met Jesus. I haven't yet seen Jesus face to face. That's coming. I'll get that opportunity, I know. But I know him. I've met him. There are people who are online that we've not seen face to face, but we've kind of met them. You know, we can talk to Jesus. We can relate, have this relationship with him. We know the reality of this. Paul is brought into this incredible revelation that Jesus really is who the Bible, who the Old Testament has said the Messiah would be. And suddenly Paul, his, his dots are joined together for him, really, because Jesus says to him that I am the one that you've been persecuting. And of course, Paul is in that situation that as he hears this voice, the men around Paul don't hear it. They hear a voice, but they can't recognize what is being said. It's like uh, it's just muffled or they, it's not clear to them. And they recognize it's a voice, but they don't know what was said. Well, 
Here Daniel says, I alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so they fled to hide themselves. So these men that are with Daniel, they know something strange is happening, but it's only Daniel that gets to hear these words. Interesting lesson there, actually, that it's those that want to hear the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord will speak, those that are seeking him. And although Paul, you can argue, wasn't seeking him, Paul was zealous for the truth. And God just revealed him what it was. It's the person of Jesus. But they say, therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me. Now, very similar to John, to Paul, everybody, everybody that meets Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, Isaiah in the Old Testament uh, as well, chapter 6, similar situation as a vision of Jesus. Uh, and it's just overwhelmed. No strength, uh, as Daniel says, left in me. Uh, for my comeliness was turned in me to corruption. You know, every good thing that we think we have will suddenly look horrible when we compare it to Jesus Christ. And I retained no strength. Do you know, if you've ever been painting at home and you take the lid off some white paint, you know, you've got to paint the ceiling or walls, whatever, uh, you know, there was once a time that we never put white paint on the walls, did we? We always used magnolia. Uh, but now we're allowed to use white paint. Um, I don't know why that changed, but we're allowed to now, so we do it. Um, but you take the lid off the paint and suddenly there's a little speck that suddenly falls in it. And it stands out. You notice it, don't you? Well, that's a little bit like it is. When we'll get to see Jesus, when we have a vision of Jesus and we realize who he is, it doesn't matter how good we thought we were before, suddenly even the littlest things in our life stand out. Jesus is perfect. He's pure. He's holy. And Daniel was basically saying that. You know, I was just, just, just overwhelmed by my own uh, corruption, as he puts it. He says there is no uh, strength in me. You know, all the good that we possess, as like Isaiah says, is turned into filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. You know, like Isaiah said in chapter 6, you know, woe is me for I'm undone. You know, well, Isaiah may have thought he was a pretty good godly man up to that point and suddenly faced before God. You, you see, the thing is, we try and judge ourselves by other people's standards, don't we? If anybody says to you, are you a good person? You know, immediately we think about somebody else and we think, well, I'm better than they are, so yeah, I must be okay. And that's how we tend to judge ourselves. God doesn't use that standard. God uses his standard. And that's why the Bible says that all have sinned and come short and fallen short of the glory of God. Because when we are compared to God's standard, suddenly we realize that we are sinners. It's something that people in the world don't like to hear. We like to be told, actually, yeah, we're not doing too bad, we're okay. But the Bible says that actually we are sinners. We've fallen from God's holy, perfect standard. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15 uh, speaks of this corruption of our physical bodies. It says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, these natural bodies can't inherit God's kingdom. You know, every time in Scripture somebody meets Jesus, be it uh, Daniel here or John in Revelation or Isaiah, they fall down as if they're dead. You know, it, it wouldn't be good going through eternity, all eternity. If every time you looked at Jesus, you just, that, was, that was it, you were, you were out for the day. You know, so flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. We're going to get new bodies. Uh, Paul says, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Our new bodies are going to be incorruptible. Behold, I show you a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And it's going to happen incredibly quickly. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That word twinkling in the Greek is atomos. Uh, it's the smallest indivisible unit of time, which if you're interested is 10 to the minus 33 seconds, apparently. Uh, it's such a, I mean, we, we, you can't even blink that quick, all right? But that's how quick the Bible says it's going to happen. Suddenly, we're going to be transformed, we're going to be changed. The Bible says this will occur at a time yet future for us that the Bible speaks about. We use the term rapture. It's a time when the Lord will come back for his people. He will take them out of the earth and we'll go back to be with him. But at that moment, we will suddenly be transformed and we'll be changed. And as Paul says, um, he goes on, he speaks about the trumpet that's going to sound, which will be at that occasion. He says, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed, or we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So there's got to be this transformation, this changing. You know, in a sense, we, it's a poor example, but you think of a, a chrysalis, you know, and it goes through that struggle and change, and it comes out as this incredible, beautiful butterfly. You know, in a sense, it's a little bit like us. It's not the best of analogies, but you get the picture that there's going to be this transformation and what will come out will be so radically different than what was there before. Verse 9, we carry on with the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 10. Yet I heard, so yet heard I the voice of his words 
And when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. Now notice what Daniel says here, because it's quite interesting. He says, I heard the voice of his words. Not I heard his words or I heard him speak. I heard the voice of his words. Now, anyone who has read scripture, read the Bible, you've heard the word of God. That's God's word. But this is something other than just that. This is the voice of Behind the words, if you like, the voice of the words. You know, and what will it be like when we actually get to hear his voice? You know, we, we talk often, and there's some great hymns and songs written about when we get to see Jesus and our eyes will see him and, and so on, how wonderful that will be. But we're going to get to hear him as well. And I can't imagine just how incredible that's going to be. We actually get to hear the voice of his words. Daniel says he heard the voice of his words. And then he says about this deep sleep that just came upon him. Yeah, there's actually seven times uh, we find in the Hebrew uh, that that phrase occurs in the Old Testament. And every time it seems to be something that God brings about. It's almost like an anesthesia that God places upon someone um, for this purpose of revealing a vision or for whatever reason he chooses to do so. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. Okay, so the vision is over. That was the vision. That's the vision that Daniel had. There's no explanation as to why it happened. And you know, sometimes God reveals himself to us, and he doesn't tell us why. Sometimes we have an experience, and it's just, we just feel overwhelmingly blessed. But what do we do with it? And we don't know. But you know, God sometimes, by his grace, chooses to do that. Just gives us a vision of who he is. We just get a glimpse of his greatness for his purpose. And we don't always get to have the explanation. Daniel's not told why he got to see the vision. I guess my, my thinking is probably the Lord was just giving him this incredible blessing for his faithfulness. But he just revealed himself to him. But now we find that another individual, is an hand, not his hand, so it's not the one that he's just seen in the vision, but an hand, someone else's hand, such as him, and he said, it set me upon my knees. And again, not the same person as we've said, um, and this vision that was by the river is all over now. Uh, Daniel's back in the real world, by the side of the river still, but kind of back to reality. Um, and it seems that it's just an angel now that is going to touch him and kind of get him up, or at least get him up halfway. He gets up to his knees, uh, kind of still kind of, you can just imagine, just, just totally blown away by the, the vision and the experience he's just had. Uh, and so he's there. Verse 13, and he said unto me, so this is now this angel, this visitor, uh, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. It's kind of a comforting thing, isn't it, to hear? You know, after what he's just seen, maybe he was wondering what was going to happen next. And the words he hears are, Daniel, God loves you. God really loves you. You know, in the Bible, there are three individuals that are referred to as beloved. Daniel in the Old Testament, the Apostle John in the New Testament, and the church. And to all of those, God reveals his most intimate secrets. Daniel had these incredible visions and prophecies. John also had these incredible visions and prophecies. And of course, the church also is beneficiary of these things that the Lord has revealed. And the Lord says that we are beloved as well. We're accepted in the beloved. It's an incredible thing. You know, we, we can't overestimate just the love that God has for us. I was listening to a, a sermon from a Calvary Pastors Conference from some years ago. I just happened to have it in the car one morning driving to work. Um, so I thought I'd just put it on. And, and um, it was all about understanding how much God loves you. You know, often we think about how we should love God, serve God, and, and, and that's appropriate in its place. But it's saying, you know, that you need to understand that God really loves you. And, and come to that place of realizing that God doesn't just put up with you. God loves you. Absolutely loves you as you are. But greatly beloved, he says, understand. This is, again, I, I love this because understand the words that I speak unto you. And stand upright. It's like, come get up, Daniel, embarrassing me down there. Stand up, please. I want to talk to you. Uh, for unto thee am I now sent. So just as Gabriel had been sent in the previous chapter to speak to Daniel specifically, so this angel now specifically has been sent to speak to Daniel. Now, Daniel was mourning, no doubt praying, no doubt seeking God and trying to understand what was going on with his people Israel and, and Jerusalem and so on. And now this angel sent to explain to him some things that are going to happen. Okay, and this angel specifically sent to explain to Daniel. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. So it's like the angel says, come on, get up, Daniel. Stop, stop you know, give me your feet. And Daniel gets up, but he's still a little bit shaky here because you can appreciate it. I think we would be too. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that 
we, we find uh, in the next verse, then he said unto me, fear not. You know, why is it that when angels appear, the first thing they seem to say is fear not. Uh, maybe they don't quite get us, but I think probably if any of us saw an angel face to face, we would fear. Uh, we would probably tremble just a little bit. Um, incredible. Uh, but Daniel is told, Daniel, fear not. Uh, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. So this angel now saying, that I'm coming to answer the prayer that you've been praying. And from the first day you started praying, I was sent to you. And you'll find it's 21 days prior to this that that had happened. <clears throat> Gabriel flew swiftly, we were told in the previous chapter, to answer Daniel's prayer. And so here we see again that God had heard Daniel's prayer from the first day that he started to pray. So let me ask you the question. So do we need to keep on praying then? If God hears us the first time, what's the point of carrying on praying? Well, a lot of reasons, actually. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, we're told, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of this world. You know, we're not fighting you know, flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. But our weapons, we're told, are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Paul speaks of something that we're wrestling with, that we're fighting with, that is spiritual. And that's why we need to be persistent in prayer. You know, the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in is not resolved by just a single prayer. But it requires a persistent, faithful petition. If you like, a sustained attack on the enemy's position. And that's why God calls us to pray without ceasing. In James chapter 5, we're told that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we give the example of Elijah, who we're told was just like us, same passions as we have. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. I love it when you stick into that and you look at the details behind Elijah in the Old Testament. You find that Elijah was only praying in accord to the word of God. God had said, if the people disobey me, I'm going to stop rain coming upon their land. And so Elijah goes to God and says, God, you said that if the people disobeyed you, you'd stop rain coming. Well, they're disobeying you. I pray that you stop the rain. And he carried on praying and he carried on praying and then God stopped the rain. And then one day he pops into Ahab's palace, the king, and says, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. Because of your sin. <clears throat> so again, the reason for the necessity in prayer starts to become clear. We go into the next verse and we read this. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and clearly from the context we'll see this, some spiritual entity, withstood me one and twenty days, twenty-one days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So, this angel is coming on the first day that Daniel starts praying. God sends him. And as Daniel carries on to pray, what Daniel doesn't see is that there's a big battle going on in the heavenly realms. That this individual spiritual entity referred to as the, the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, so seriously, clearly some power over the Persian empire, some um, satanic power, it would seem, stands against this angel and then Michael, who is one of the chief angels, comes and intervenes and helps this angel get through to Daniel. It's a glimpse of the unseen spiritual realm. And it's this battle that we get a glimpse of here is continually taking place, even though we are often not aware of it. We find that the prince of the kingdom of Persia is not Cyrus, it's not any other Persian ruler, but again, it seems to be the satanic spiritual power that was behind the kingdom. Now, we see it alluded to in Isaiah 14, a similar situation. It starts by speaking about the king of Babylon, but then we realize that it's gone way beyond that, and it's looking at the spiritual power behind him. In that case, it's actually Satan himself in Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28, a similar thing. We have the king of Tyre that's being spoken of, and then it kind of it shifts gear, and we realize it's speaking about the power behind the king of Tyre and so on. Just a quick comment about angels, the spiritual realm. Angels, we're told, are created beings. They saw the world being created. In fact, originally, all the angels were good. They, there was no rebellion. They served God. They worshipped God. When God created the earth, they worshipped him. Angels have bodies. Not like our bodies, because their bodies can seem to materialize and, and, and so on as they want to. But they have some sort of physical, maybe that's not the right expression, but they have bodies that are of some, um, some nature. 
Um, they're able to perform miracles. There's a number of occasions we, we can cite in Scripture. Uh, in fact, uh, funny enough, this morning I was just reading in my own personal study, just going through the book of Acts, of when an angel arrived and lets Peter out of prison, and the gates just open, and they walk out the door, and so on. Angels perform all sorts of miracles through the Bible. We're told that some have even entertained angels unawares. Um, so they could appear in a way that we wouldn't even recognize them at times. The, the idea of guardian angels, which of course people often talk about, you know, but it actually comes from, from Matthew 18. Uh, it's spoken there that angels look after children. Uh, angels certainly engage in warfare, spiritual warfare, and even in physical conflict. It's incredible. You know, if you do some, some Googling and, and, and look online, you'll find a number of examples from the Second World War particularly where people will give, give accounts that they were saved in the midst of an incredible battle by what they describe as an angel appearing or angels appearing. Uh, some really interesting examples that have uh, been recorded through history. Um, but certainly we've got examples in Second Kings, Isaiah and so on uh, that angels get involved in those things. Interestingly, angels also desire to learn. That means they don't know everything. They're not like God. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything that's going to happen. And they actually look to the church to see a lot of what's going on. Um, And God's plan is revealed through the church, which is interesting. We find that angels appear in the the Bible announcing the Messiah coming. Daniel 9, we saw that last week. Of course, announcing the birth of Christ, Gabriel particularly. Uh, At the temptation in the wilderness, angels come and minister to Jesus at the end. At the resurrection in the tomb, we find angels there. At the ascension, again, at the time when Jesus returns, the second coming, angels will be present all through the Bible, always seemingly connected with or something to do with the Messiah. Of course, there are fallen angels. Now we find in Revelation 12, a third of the angelic hosts rebelled against God. Why did they rebel? Well, we find that there was an individual called Lucifer who led that rebellion. God's creating the world. He makes everything wonderful. And Satan's thinking, well, this this has got to be for me, isn't it? Who would the Lord want to honor more than me? It's a great model that we have recorded for us in the book of Esther. Okay, Haman is, in that kind of account, the type of Satan who thought, you know, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? And then suddenly finds out on day six that God creates man. And Satan is furious because he thought he was going to inherit this wonderful earth, this wonderful world. As a result of that, he rebelled and took a third of the angels with him. And so his intention was always then to try and usurp Adam, to claim this world as his own, which indeed he does. And Jesus doesn't even challenge him. That temptation, Luke 4 and and, uh, elsewhere, when Satan says to, to Jesus, I'll give you the kingdom of the earth, Jesus doesn't say, you can't do that. Jesus acknowledges that they are for now in Satan's control. Jesus will wrest them back, will wrestle them back out of the hands of Satan. And we get that detail for us in Revelation. Angels, some angels, left their first estate. Uh, It's an expression we have in Jude and the idea in uh, 2 Corinthians. We have a similar word. Okaterian is the word okaterian in the Greek. Uh, And it speaks of a a body that gives way to another body. So we will let go of these natural bodies and we will get spiritual supernatural bodies, as I said earlier. But some angels also left the bodies they had and took on a different form. I won't go into it this morning, but that is what he's dealt with in Genesis chapter 6. That's what led to all the giants. Mythology is replete with these examples of giants and so on throughout the world. Genesis 6 gives you the reason for that. Ultimately, Satan and the angels will be cast out of heaven. Uh, But we need to understand that there are fallen angels. They're malevolent. They seek to do harm. Um, they hate mankind because as far as Satan's concerned, we got given this earth and he wanted it and he doesn't want to let go of it. Matthew 25 actually tells us that hell was made for the devil and his angels. Okay, So no human being needs to go to hell. Jesus has paid the price for everybody to not go to hell. But you know, if somebody doesn't accept the free offer of salvation that Jesus paid for, there is no other option. You either accept the offer that Jesus made, that his death was sufficient to pay for your sin, and you get heaven as a free gift, or if you choose to reject it, the only other option is hell. It's been said before that God won't send anybody to hell. People say, why would a God of love send people to hell? He doesn't. He's a God of love, so he gave you a way out. But you don't take it, it's your choice. Demons. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to throw this in there just to to rattle your brains a little bit. 
They're different from angels. A lot of commentaries and commentators don't make this distinction. Demons are not the same as angels. Let me ask you the question, where did they come from? God didn't create them. There's no record that God created these malevolent beings. Angels we get. God made them. They were all good. Some rebelled. Okay, we understand the situation. But demons, there was never any good demons. They're always bad. Where did they come from? You know, again, they desperately seek embodiment. No angel does that. Angels have their own bodies. Demons are knowledgeable, but they also know their destiny. There's examples in the Old and the New Testament. I'm not going to go into it this morning, but I encourage you again, do a study in Genesis 6 if you want to understand the difference between angels and demons and what demons really are. We often overlook the influence of the spiritual realm in our lives, but we really shouldn't. You know, Paul warned us in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high, literally heavenly places. That's the real battle that we're fighting as Christians. The battleground is our minds. You know, we'll talk about this as we go on in a second. But you know, it's not occasional wrestling; it's an everyday event. We're often ignorant of it, and so often we're defeated because we're not ready for it. We're not aware of it. You know, the battle is ultimately for the souls of men, and the battleground is the mind. That's where the battle takes place. The mind is where Satan's most unassailable strongholds are erected. And there's all sorts of things that he's done. Evolution, one of the biggest ones. It is amazing the number of wonderfully qualified and intelligent scientists who know the stupidity of evolution, and yet they still promote it and they still teach it. Because they know that if they reject it, the only other option is that there is a God. And if there's a God, then we're accountable to that God. Evolution is scientifically impossible. And it's easily proven, you can prove that to be the case. And yet, this world generally accepts evolution and they believe there is no God and we don't need a God because we're here as a result of time and chance and random processes. It's utter nonsense. As I said before, you know, you go to Darwin's book. Darwin's book says the things produce other than their kind. They evolve. They become something they weren't. God's book says everything reproduces after its kind. Well, there you go. That's, that's battle over right there because God's book is right. Have you ever found something that reproduces other than what it is? No. Everything only ever reproduces according to its kind. Nothing can reproduce other than what it is. If you go to a garden center and you buy a packet of seeds, you don't get a little warning sign on the bottom saying, warning may produce a frog. They are confident that when they show you on the, the, the seeds that for these pansies or sunflowers, whatever pictures on the front, they are confident that those seeds will produce that plant or that flower. Absolutely confident. They're willing to stake their reputation on it as a business because they know that that will never produce, that seed will not produce anything other than its kind because the information in there can only produce that. That's true, we get mutations and that's a scrambling of the information, but it's not new information. Evolution does not work. And yet, it's one of these, these things that have been built up, these strongholds in people's minds. And there are many others that we could talk about and we could cite. But that's where the battleground is. And Satan would love everybody to think that, oh, Christianity is silly, it's nonsense, there's no... Uh, well, 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 I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, in the, in the Bible, it speaks of somebody who said, you know, if somebody were to rise from the dead, I believe. And Jesus rose from the dead. Do you accept that? I said, the evidence is overwhelming. Well, well... Uh, Okay, well, you tell me what you're prepared to accept, and we'll have a conversation. People say they're prepared to accept proof, but they don't even know what proof they'd be willing to accept. The evidence is overwhelming. God has given us his word. We can demonstrate from mathematics, from archaeology, from history, from science. You go through so many different fields of inquiry and investigation, and the Bible stacks up every time. Let's move on. Paul says that we should be casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So all these things that compete, that tell you that God's not real, or God can't do this, or God's not able to do that. No, no, this is where spiritual warfare really takes place. And bringing every, into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Spiritual warfare is about mind control, effectively. If Satan can manipulate our thoughts, causing us to doubt, fear, and use discouragement, that's one of his favorite tools. Envy, lust, hatred, and the like. He gains a foothold, and that becomes a foundation for him to build his stronghold upon. If, on the other hand, we are not conformed to this world, as Paul says in the book of Romans, but we're transformed by the continual renewing of our mind, will not be subject to Satan, but will know that what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what Romans 12 verse 2 tells us. 
And that's why Paul says that we should set our affections, our, literally our thoughts, on the things above and not on the things of the earth. You know, I, I used to, when I was younger, I used to ride a motorbike. And I was, to, when I was taught to ride, they always said you need to look at where you're going. Don't just look in front of you, the, the immediate bit. Look at the destination. If you're going around a bend on a bike, because it's slightly different, you know, it's like a push bike. You, you have to kind of lean and so on. You've probably seen bikers do it. But you look at the apex of the road, and look at where you're going, and you're fine. If you find a pothole in the road on a bike, the worst thing you can do is look at it because you'll hit it because you end up going exactly where you, you know. Same idea here. Poor example, maybe, but you get the, the picture. The things that you set your affections on, they will dictate you, they will chart your course. Peter said, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. It's, it's, again, you know, being sober has the idea not about drunkenness, but about thinking. And hope unto the end for the grace of it to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, be careful what you think about and dwell on. Be in control of your thought life and don't allow it to be overrun by emotions and passions and so on. Another way of paraphrasing what Peter said is to hang in there until the day of Christ, when by his grace the struggle will finally be over. For now, we're told to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You know, I was talking to Paul yesterday and we were reading through Psalm uh, 23. And he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I said, you know, a shadow can't hurt anyone. A shadow has no power. All a shadow does is to tell you that there's a greater light. Have you ever thought about that? A shadow just proves that there is a greater light. The, the fiery darts that the enemy tries to throw at us, uh, fire at us, they're extinguished by our shield of faith. Okay? And, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer. And so, Notice praying always. Daniel earlier was praying, kept praying. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Okay, so Chuck Minister points out that you need the armor in place before the battle commences. It's kind of an obvious thing when you think about it, but it's no use if you were going to go into battle trying to put the armor on when you get there or when you're under attack. It's a bit late by that point. Roman soldiers would repair their armor between the battles. It's a good lesson for us. So there's great ways we can repair our armor. Fellowship, reading the word of God, praying, communion. All of those do wonders for our spiritual armor. Typically, Roman soldiers also had no armor on their backs. And commentators and scholars have suggested that for a number of reasons. One is that they wouldn't want to retreat because then as soon as they turn their back on the enemy, they were vulnerable. While as believers, and Paul says to Timothy, that we've been enlisted in God's army, we also shouldn't retreat or backslide or turn our backs on the enemy either. And again, it's worth noting that we're often our most vulnerable when we're on our way home after a battle, okay? when we're turned away from the enemy. You know, sometimes we, we do some wonderful things, the Lord blesses us, um, and those are the times we have to be so careful, because immediately following that, um, we find that we come under uh, incredible attack. I've just got to use this as an example, but, you know, you, you often see it with football, and I, I mentioned this only because England won 4-0 last night, and I'm not sure if you knew about that, and I'm sorry if you wanted to watch highlights later, but it was great. You know, but often when a team score a goal, the most vulnerable time for them is immediately after they've scored. Because it's the counter-attack then that comes back at them. Same in the spiritual realm. But I just want to work for Ink because I wanted to mention England 1-4-0. Um, you know, we may have just had a great victory or preached a good sermon, led a Bible study, witnessed to a friend or a colleague, been at a powerful prayer meeting or worship time, but the enemy will be lurking and ready to pounce on the way home. So always be wary of those things. And one of his favorite tools is discouragement. No one cares. What's the use? They don't appreciate me. After all the effort I've made, you know, those are the kind of things that Satan will use. We've all been there. We all know what it's like. Although Daniel, let's get back on track, may not have understood what was going on in the spiritual realm, he was still faithful in prayer. And as a result, Michael, the archangel, and there's only one archangel, uh, is able to come and assist the other angel in getting through to Daniel. You know, what would have happened if Daniel had given up after, say, the 20th day? But he carries on. He's persistent. I love this quote from Chuck Misler. He says this. Uh, he says, prayer is God's way of enlisting us in what he's doing. 
just indulge me just a second. We're coming to a close. But I want to just read this to you. This is by a man by the name of Paul Bilheimer. It's a fantastic book called Destined for the Throne. I encourage you to get it and read it. It's not a difficult read, but it's fantastic. He says this, and this is just in regards to the whole issue of spiritual warfare. He says, if the highest function of angelic host is praise, it follows logically that the highest function of the human spirit must also be praise. Praising God decentralizes self. The worship and praise of God demands a shift of center from self to God. One cannot praise without relinquishing occupation with self. Praise produces forgetfulness of self, and forgetfulness of self is health. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake the same shall save it. Again, Paul Bilheimer, and just a few other quotes. He says, there are other reasons why praise is of such supreme importance and why so much larger a portion of the word is given to praise than prayer. For some reason, Satan fears praise even more than prayer. God gave to King David such a revelation of the importance of the power of praise upon the earth that following the heavenly pattern, he set aside and dedicated an army of 4,000 Levites whose sole occupation was to praise the Lord. That's why we praise, that's why we sing. It's so important. He goes on and says, in Psalm 22, verse 3, we are told that God inhabits the praises of his people. This means that wherever there is adoration, reverence, and acceptable worship and praise, there he identifies and openly manifests his presence, and his presence always expels Satan. Satan cannot operate in the divine presence. Okay, let's make a run to the end of the chapter. Now, I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people, Israel, in the latter days, for the vision, for yet the vision is for many days. And that's what we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12. So we're not going to get the, the details of this uh, prophecy that's coming. That will all come in chapters 11 and 12. Again, it's regarding the Jews. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground and I became done. Dumb. Back down again goes Daniel. Uh, he's not been up very long, and now he's back on his face. Uh, it's amazing, though, how much Daniel saw and observed and recorded that we are now the beneficiaries of, and by now he's about 85 years old. And he says, Behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. It's interesting because it's very similar to Isaiah. And then I opened my mouth and spoke and said unto him that stood before me, O oh my Lord, by the vision my sorrows have turned upon me, and I have retained, retained no strength. Again, it seems that Daniel refers to the vision that he had of Jesus, that he was just so undone, for want of a better expression. Uh, the Hebrew word for vision is mara. It means a mirror, a looking glass. That's the idea. Uh, and the word for sorrows is yitzo, which means pressed or crushed, uh, as in a hinge that, that, that brings in. You know, Daniel's effectively saying, I've seen myself as I am, and I'm crushed. You know, when we said, as we said earlier, Coming face to face with Jesus, we become aware of our own imperfection and his perfection. And the same is true when we look into the word of God. It reveals who we are in the light of who God is. It's interesting, you know, in the temple in Jerusalem and obviously in the tabernacle where it was first set up, they had this big bath, bronze bath called the laver. And they, the priest used it to wash in. Originally, the one in the tabernacle was made out of the mirrors from the children of Israel that they brought out, brought out of Egypt. They all kind of gave their mirrors up, these bronze mirrors. They melted them down and they made this laver. Well, the laver is analogous to the word of God. It cleanses by the washing of water. And it also reflects our true selves back to us. That's what the word of God, that's what the Bible does to us. And that's why, again, so many are opposed to the Bible, because it tells the truth about the human condition. It shows that we're not evolving and getting better, but we're actually fallen from grace and in need of a saviour. As with Isaiah, this angelic being touches Daniel on the lips. And Isaiah, I just read there, that one of the, then flew one of the seraphims, again, one of these angelic beings, unto me having a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. This symbolic act. Verse 17, For how can the servant of my Lord talk with this my Lord? For... As for me, straight away there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. What's Daniel saying? It's a bit of a confusing sentence the way it's translated in the English. But Daniel really is simply saying, how can one who is unholy talk freely with one who is holy? That's really what he's saying. You know, he recognizes who God is. How can I have a conversation? 
with God. It's interesting that there's no sin recorded of Daniel, and yet he's under no illusion that he's still a sinner. Then they came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. So Daniel's like, you know, he's down, he's up. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a roller coaster day for him. Oh, what a day. And it's interesting that Daniel is powerless in his spiritual experience until he's strengthened by one like the Son of Man. It's God reaching down, touching him, that strengthens him here. You know, and we too are powerless in any spiritual conflict unless we draw our strength from the Son of Man. And Paul urges Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know the verse, the verse of the week this morning, you know, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, that we can obtain strength to help in a time of need. God says, come, ask. And said, oh man, greatly beloved, see, there you have again, uh, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong. Yea, be strong. What a message to us this morning, that whatever you're going through, God says, be strong. Be strong because I will strengthen you. You can come in those times of need and you can ask. You can ask boldly because I've given you permission to do that. You can come and you can ask and I will make you strong. And when he had spoken unto me, notice I was strengthened. It says be strong, but Daniel doesn't go out and do some kind of bodybuilding and some press-ups and stuff. Daniel relies on God. God is the one that strengthens him. And said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Notice, again, this comes from the Lord. There's also a sense of compassion in the angel's reply. Don't look at yourself the way you see things, but know how God sees you, a man who is greatly beloved. The word peace it's spoken of there. In the Hebrew, it's the word shalom. You're probably familiar. But it comes from the root lashalem, which means to pay or to fill or to fulfill. And that's all very interesting because real peace can only come because Jesus died to pay for our sins, to fulfill the law of Moses and to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus said to the disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. And those words should really give us comfort regardless of the circumstances we face. Okay, to wrap up, last couple of verses. So then said he, knowest thou wherefore I came unto thee, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. Andrew just kind of puts this in there. He's like, I'm going to have a difficult time on the way back. He says, and when I'm gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. And it's going to be very difficult to get back is what he's saying. Just a couple of comments in closing about this whole spiritual war thing because we clearly see that there are angelic powers that are over nations and empires. But it's led, sadly, to this idea that these strongholds, we talked about earlier, which are actually in the mind, but the idea that those strongholds are actually over nations. And people kind of misapply this. You know, and the idea is if we pray hard enough that we can bring those strongholds crashing down. It's a, it's a big spiritual deception. And the idea is then taken one step further uh, that the principalities and the powers that are mentioned that we read earlier in Ephesians 6, that they're different orders of spiritual beings, which is true, they are. Um, but that they actually are over nations and cities and towns and they exert spiritual control in those areas. Now, they may, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that. And many Christian books will talk about territorial spirits, you know, how we can do battle with them. You know, and it was that kind of idea and that teaching that led to all the kind of prayer walks that we had back in the late 80s and into the 90s and so on. And even things like the March of Jesus. And I'm not saying that they were wrong necessarily, but a lot of the reason for them was that if we go out and we do these marches and so on, that we'll bring these spiritual powers down. If a big enough assault was launched against these, these supposed territorial spirits, the idea was that we could defeat them and destroy their influence. You know, and that teaching went hand in hand with a lot of the other things that were coming in, that kind of purpose-driven, emerging, mission-shaped, alpha, all of those things that speak about the church being great and wonderful and the idea that one day the church will rule the world and then when we're done, Jesus can come back. It's not what the Bible says is going to happen at all. Kingdom now, dominion theology, some of these expressions you may have heard, restorationism, and they're kind of popular terms that abound in the church, sadly. And the idea is, again, that the church will rule the world for Jesus Christ. And some even deny that Jesus will come back literally as a result of these things. So there's a lot of abuse, a lot of misunderstanding. And again, because of this, uh, these ideas have been drawn from a verse or a passage that's taken out of context. A lot of Christians have been caught up in this kind of thing. And a lot of Christian authors uh, have promoted these ideas. And they also deny the rapture and the second coming, as I mentioned 
If you want a good book on the subject of spiritual warfare, I really recommend a book by Pastor Bill Randalls. He's an American pastor, Making War in the Heavenlies. You can pick it up for under £5 on Amazon. It's really good, worth reading. Uh, it will explain a lot of this stuff. Um, Ephesians 6 does list differing ranks of spiritual beings. And they may have authority over nations and cities and towns. But we're not told specifically whether they do or they don't. But nowhere in the Bible is the church told to attack and bring down these fallen angels. In fact, the only occasion where we see this situation is where we're looking right now. And when the first principality goes, the first prince goes, the prince of Persia, it's replaced with something even worse, being the prince of Greece. So we need to be very careful that we don't just blindly jump into these things uh, without doing a little bit of background. Get back to what we said earlier. The real area of spiritual warfare is our minds. That's the thing. We all have control there. We can all go to God and find grace to help in those times of need. And so we conclude the chapter, but I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. I like this. Notice what is recorded in the scripture of truth. It's what the angel says. It's all as if the angels already read it. You know, did the angel get a sneak preview kind of uh, before the film was released, as it were? I just wonder, because God's word has stood from before the foundation of the world. You know, we, we think we've got the Bible. We think it was kind of written, you know, over the you know, 2000 year period from about 1600 BC onwards. But it's always been there. God's word is settled in heaven. And whatever the angel's revealing here has already been recorded. And Daniel is going to be told about those things. And again, Daniel said, uh, sorry, the, the, this is, Daniel noted that it's established in the faithful writing, uh, is what he said earlier. So um, Daniel, uh, David said, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And Revelation, uh, we're told there about the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world and those whose names are in that book. So the book itself must have existed from before the foundation as well. So therefore, could it be the angels actually reading from the written word of God and relaying it to Daniel in advance? Just an interesting thought, but we're going to find out a little bit more next time. Now, Michael is always seen to be fighting on behalf of Israel. And uh, so uh, it was seen that Israel, like God's land, uh, that entrusted the Jews, is the only place in the world that has a godly angel protecting it. That's something we do see from Scripture. And of course, it's a stark contrast to the rest of the world. And as we go into the next chapter we'll get to find out what the angel was actually sent to tell Daniel. So that's all like the, the prelude. Next week we'll get into it. Let's bow our hearts. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it really is mind-blowing. It's overwhelming, Lord, as we start to try and comprehend just the depth and the breadth, the height, a lot of all of these things. But, Father, we do pray that you would watch over and protect and keep us. Lord, give us wisdom in regard to the spiritual warfare that goes on around us. Lord, help us to realize that those little things that we let into our minds really can have a big impact. Lord, not just on us, but on those around us. Father, help us to bring every thought captive to you. Lord, to trust you, to follow you, to seek you. Lord, just be with us as we go from here and through this coming week. And Lord, if you tarry, Lord, the next time we meet, we just pray that we would continue to grow in knowledge and grace. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.